Hello and welcome to Extraordinary with me, James Wallace, the show that puts a spotlight on ordinary people who have gone on to do extraordinary things. This week, I'm joined by an absolute superhuman, Esther Marshall, who tells me all about her experiences of domestic abuse, losing her sister to mental illness and starting up two businesses. Esther has a string of titles and accolades to her name, but above all else, she's changing the world and has not stopped giving back. Her story and outlook on life is so moving, and I hope you feel the same inspiration I did. Enjoy the show. Esther, thank you so much for for joining today. Um, When I first started, um, well, when I came up with the idea of this podcast, you were one of the first people I thought of um, for for, for many reasons. Um, And I'll let let you introduce yourself in a sec, but just for the benefit of everyone, these are just some of the the titles and accolades that Esther has to her name. So... um, She's a founder of um, Sophie Says and Stand Tall Charities. She's an author. She's a global gender and diversity lead until very recently and a senior HR manager at Unilever. Um, she won Just Giving Influencer of the Year, runner-up for Women of the Future. She came nine out of 100 in Women Entrepreneurs in Tech to Watch. She won a Government Point of Light Award and she's also a wife and a mum and she's only 31. <laughs> it's not bad going, is it? Not bad going. So, um, Esther, I was going to say, like, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do, but I feel like I've done it for you. It's so funny. I never, ever think of myself like that. It's not funny to hear someone else saying it. Um, it's like Piers yeah. Morgan. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I just, hi, I'm Esther. I, um, I basically say I'm, I just want to make the world a better place, really. Um, and specifically, really, for our next generation who are growing up in a world and society that we didn't grow up with and and need a whole host of other tools and um and feelings to be able to deal with all of that um so that's kind of my main aim I mean I guess there's other stuff like you said but really that's that's the crux of what I want to be doing and and I love that because I also that is my biggest passion I just feel so strongly um about equipping the new generation, the new people that we're welcoming welcoming into the world with the right tools and abilities to to tackle all of all of the curveballs that life throws mm-hmm. at you. And I, and I think it's it's taken me to the age of thirty to realise how deprived we were of of the right mindset. Um, you don't talk too much about sexuality, but in my own experience, you know, I always talk about. LGBT not being on any form of formal education curriculum until way after 2002 or 2003 when Section 28 was repealed. It's like, well, no wonder there's all these kind of gay boys and girls walking around with all sorts of trauma and shame. Um, it's just yeah, one small example. Yeah, yeah, so, no, but you're so right. So we, <clears throat> we've known each other for a few years. Um, okay. we, we were, um, always crossing paths at university. And one thing that always sticks in my mind is that me and you always had career chats. I feel like we were on it. We were like very much on it. We were talking about careers from like the minute I got to uni, it was all about the grad schemes, et cetera, et cetera. And you went on to have such an incredible, like, insane career at Unilever you must feel like, do you feel looking back at kind of like second year, third year Esther, you achieved what you set out to achieve from, from the career side of Again, so I never really think of it as like, wow, I've had this like amazing career and what I've done. I think it was again, always thinking like day to day, like what am I doing and I'm, am I making a difference? So yeah, if I, if I sit back and think, have I made a difference in the way that I wanted to since university, then hundred percent, I'm, I'm really proud of that. Um, I think for me it was, you know, everyone's saying, oh, you need to go to university, you need to do this course. And I was doing a geography course, which, you know, great. I learned loads, but it was actually someone who said to me, you should do a careers module that I was like, well, what is that? What's a careers module? And it helped me so much just to understand the basics of like, where do I want to go? What do I want to do? How am I going to find something that I actually enjoy? Because everyone was like, yeah, you'll just get a career and you'll, and, and you'll go for it day to day, but you might not really like it. And I'm like, well, what's the point? We're going to be doing this till we're like 80. Um, we might as well be doing something that we like and we can make a difference. So that really kind of helped carve a path for me to work out what I wanted to do and where I wanted to put my energy into in order to get where I wanted to go. That makes total sense. And, and was it always, 
you say you you always felt this need to well not maybe not a need but a want to make a difference was a career in HR the best way you saw you know you found that way of doing it um yeah that that was eventually kind of where I got to because I, I think as well you're taught not only do you need a career and you want to make a difference but also like you need the money so I was like oh, I want to go traveling around the world and helping underprivileged kids. And I was like, well, I don't have any money to travel. And I don't have, like, (laughs) how do I do that? So, okay, let's just stick to a corporate and get a nice salary, et cetera. Um, And all I wanted to do was help people. So then all of my career teachers were like, well, people is HR. And that's kind of why I went down that route. Um, And ultimately, really, when you get into it, there are some some roles in HR which were very people-focused, but a lot of them are quite strategy-focused. So then I learned a lot about business and a lot more about the world as well so it actually helped me more than I thought to get me to where I am today which I guess we'll talk about in more detail yeah for sure and in your experience then when you were at um you know in your HR role were your eyes opened even more to to it on things like diversity and inclusion and equality like were were you shocked did you did that kind of ignite the passion even more um yeah so I think it was very early on in my career that I realized I mean it always been very much like equal rights um both my parents are NHS GPs so like every holiday we'd always go to like either old age homes or community centers or whatever and see other people that like didn't necessarily grow up with some of the privilege that I had. So me and my sisters were always kind of thrown into that. And and in a good way, I'm really grateful for it. Um, So I think it's always been there. Um, But there was then this drive to achieve. And I think for me, it was that difference of back when I was 21, going into a job like, oh, what does it mean to achieve? It means I need to have a good salary, but I also want to make a difference. But actually throughout the eight and a half years of being there, I've realized it's, it's not necessarily about the salary it's about actually making mm. a difference but back when I was 21 it was very much like okay well if this is how I want to make a difference and I want to have a nice salary and I want to climb the corporate ladder to make something of myself and be a so-called quote-unquote powerful woman and like you know feminist or whatever then that's the way I have to do yeah. it so a bit like what you were saying about sexuality teaching there, there was nothing really even though I went to an all-girls school that were like women can do everything etc there were no tools of like how do we do that so I could only see women in senior roles at some point in business. There was nowhere else really that I could see it. Um, so I just kind yeah. of naturally followed that path. Um, but yeah, what, what a path it's been and where it's kind of got to. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think, and yeah, no, it, yeah, certainly. And, and those measures of success, those kind of, kind of external validation things that we like to benchmark ourselves against like salaries, Um, and job titles on LinkedIn. Do you think that younger people now graduating from university are going after the same things? Or do you think we've moved on? No, I I really, really feel we've moved on. Um, I I could see it even from like a graduate program that when I applied, there were like hundreds of thousands of people applying. There's less people Mm. applying now. Not that it's not a great company or anything like that. It's people aren't so interested in going into this matter that corporate and like, Yes, I worked my way up in eight and a half years, managed to make quite a difference. But like I had to fight for that. And I had to, you know, yeah. go out and find the jobs that I wanted to find and, and knock on people's doors. And, you know, not everybody wants to do that. Some people also want to help starting something from the bottom. You know, you, there's so much more talent now looking at startups or starting their own thing. Because, I mean, I, I know that I worked like at points every single hour of every day because that's how I thought you climb the ladder. But quite rightly, kids now are like, why should I have to do that for myself, my, for my health, for my mental health? Like I should be able to have the flexibility that I want rather than waiting until I'm senior to put my foot down and say, this is actually what I deserve. It's not about deserving that. It's, I about, totally agree. it's about needing it. So it's taken me this long to learn that, but I really feel the next <laughs> generation already understand that. And it's quite amazing what they're therefore doing and where their career paths are going. And it's not even a career path anymore. It like, yeah. I watch this thing where it's like, there is no such thing as a career path anymore, especially from an HR point of view, like zigzag, go here, go there. It used to be, oh, you have to stay somewhere for three years at least before you move. Or you have to, you know, it's kind yeah. of like rip that all up, throw it out, 
um, and everyone's starting afresh. And it's really, really inspiring to see. Yeah, uh, I think I completely agree with you from from the limited experience I've had. I mean, I was um, a graduate assessor last week, in fact, and I could just tell the, the types of graduates coming through the door are not are not what they used to be. And I and it's just, I would love to be on the fly on the wall in those careers, career modules now to see how they're talking about career paths because I was given the same advice as you, you know, have a job, you know, move around within internally, you have mentors, you are a mentee, you do 18 months here, 12 months here, and then you'll get promoted and then you hustle. And it's just like, that yeah. is not how the world works anymore. Um, but or, yeah. or when you would meet senior leaders and you'd be like, oh my goodness, I need to be quiet. I need to write yes. out everything they say. Um, and then one day I'll knock on their door or like when I'm really senior and maybe tell them my idea. Whereas like kids nowadays are like, sorry, you're who? CEO? Oh, cool. I've got an idea. You know, like yeah. the, <laughs> the confidence that they have and they ooze is just inspiring. I'm like, I wish it's taken me. I, I still don't have it at 31, but yeah. they have it at like, 21 22 and I'm like good on you it, it will it will take you places I 100% I love it I love watching it and I'm very jealous <laughs> yeah. um so I guess oh, one of the one you've had you've had a few low blows dealt in your life um and one of them was um domestic abuse and you were in um a, a difficult well, I guess difficult is doing it a disservice, but you were in a, in a situation where you were a victim of domestic abuse. Can you talk me about that period of your life? Sure, yeah. It was when I was 18 um, and I'd kind of, I'd left home for the first time, really. I was, I was kind of traveling. And I guess I kind of grew up with like, you will find someone who loves you and and they will they will treat you as they will treat you and that will be love. And this is how you move forward. And I was like, okay, fine. And you know, this guy was like giving you all the compliments you could ever want at 18 years old. And, uh, you know, little kid leaving home, didn't have a clue like what I was doing, who I was, you know, anything like that. Um, and it just progressively got worse. Um, the jealousy, um, the, yeah, just kind of having, me almost kind of wrapped around his finger in a way like I wasn't allowed to speak to any friends um and and I say it when I talk about it publicly I say like the bruises fade but it's the other stuff that stays with you of the kind of psychological gaslighting emotional abuse so it kind of got to a point whereby he would kind of keep me locked in his apartment where he was living we were all on different programs but he got kicked off his programs for, for drug and alcohol abuse and that's obviously where a lot of the the abuse would happen you know he'd be like on drugs or alcohol and then you know crying that I was the only one that could help him and then of course I want to help someone and they feel like that and then I'd manage to get him back and like clean him up and then he'd kind of sober up a little bit and then it would just like all kind of let loose um I was in hospital three times um and eventually it got to a point whereby, I mean, I then started fighting back because I was like, I don't think I deserve this. I'm doing everything I possibly can for you. And then it got to a point where he was like, okay, well, if you can fight back, I need to find a way where you can't fight back. So then he controlled what I was eating. Um, so I went down to around six stone. Um, so I couldn't, I, I couldn't fight back. I was... I have low blood pressure anyway, but I couldn't move. I, I had no energy whatsoever. Which so he was physically, yeah. So I was going to say he he so he controlled you to the. I mean, did you know you were being controlled at that point, or was it kind of more subvert? Oh, sorry, there's sirens in the background. Um, or did you did you did you know at the time you were being controlled, or was this part of the manipulation and and what they do? Yeah. It, it took me a long time to realize that that wasn't love. I knew that yeah. it wasn't necessarily right, but I didn't know that it wasn't love, you know, because mm. once everything was calm again and he'd cry and hold me and say, I love you. This is, you know, you're everything to me, etc." Yeah. Then, then you just, you, you do, you go running back. It's so difficult to say, no, I'm going to leave this all behind. Um, you know, I, I tried once to be like, no, do you know what? I've, I've had enough. 
Um, and he came, I was with some of my friends and he came and stood in front of me and he said, he looked at me and he said, this is because of you. And he ran and started running and ran into the road and nearly got run over. To which point I'm like, oh my gosh, he's going to do that. Like I'm the only one that can save him, which is how they get inside your head. I must go back to you and I must care for you, et cetera. Um, and it was very much to my, I want to help people, et cetera. But it really made me realize there's a, there's a limit to how much one can help someone. Um, and how much someone should have to put up with. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that it was over like... And this is where my ignorance... Yeah, sorry, go on. No, 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 go for it. It, it was over kind of at that point. I was just going to say, this is this is where kind of my, um, my ignorance comes into it because you are kind of the epitome, not the epitome, but you are someone who has got some privilege. You went to great schools, great education you know, two doctor parents. But I think your story is a real example of how abuse in all forms, not just domestic abuse, can happen to anyone. Um, and, and you know, I knew you roughly when you were there. I had no idea. Mm. So, like, just to think of all the trauma and, and, the, and the shame that so many people that could be around us everywhere are going through, especially when they're at vulnerable points in their life, is just is staggering. And I think you know, the more we talk, obviously, the more we talk about it, the better. Um, and that's one of the common myths of like, oh, it only happens to these people or it only happens to those people. You know, I, I had everything, I guess what you'd say, like you could have done growing up, like a loving family, a great education, great mm. friend. And yet, I mean, when I, when I think it through, like just before I went um, traveling, I had had quite a few people in my life who were close to me pass away. And I think I felt very much while I was traveling, like, oh, I've let those people down by leaving. But this is the time of my life where this is what you do before you carry on with your life. And maybe, you know, more and more I've spoken about it in therapy. Maybe it was like this was my chance to save someone. But it, yeah. it was by no means like what, what should have happened and, and no way. It, it changed me for life, for sure. And I've heard you talk about you actually didn't start talking about it for, for quite a number of years. Yeah, um, about eight and a half years. I had friends with me that came to university who were with me when it happened and saw me in hospital and saw the weight loss and saw things happened, knew him, didn't like him, would try and tell him to go away. So for me, at least I could speak to some of those people Um I had them I did quite a bit of counseling as well while I was at university but like you said you knew me and you had no idea like I literally started uni and I came straight out of that relationship into university it was it was just not something I was ready to talk about already I, I just felt so weak and everyone like you said saw me as this person of Esther's going to achieve this in her life and, if, and I was like but how can I be that person if I've let someone do this to me it, it never really made sense um, so yeah, it was about eight years. Um, uh, yes, seven, seven years. So until relatively recently. Yeah. So, oh, yeah, yeah. so what, what, what was, what was it that you start that you, um, that triggered you to start talking about it and do something about it? Yeah. So when I started Unilever, um, in my first kind of 18 months there was very much like a a young leaders kind of culture and they they talked to me about a conference called one young world um and I was like they sent me the trailer for it and it's it's basically young leaders from all over the world from every single country who want to make the world a better place coming together in a different country every year unbelievable speakers um both incredibly famous and also just young people doing unbelievable things. And it's like a four day intense conference that I, I would say changed my life. Um, you may not think this, but I am quite an introvert. Like going to a networking event fills me with fear, that absolute fear. I don't like small talk. I can't do it. But at this event, Someone wouldn't come up to you and be like, so how are you? What are you doing today? It'd be like, hi, I'm blah, blah. What are you doing to change the world? I was like, oh, huh. I think I found <laughs> These are people I want to be with. Um, and I, I just felt calm for the first time in a long time. And I met some unbelievable people. And there was one talk 
um, where a young girl from North Korea, now although me and her didn't have that much in common because growing up in North Korea and London, incredibly difficult. She started talking <laughs> about the abuse she had faced and how it had made her change her life. Um, and I sat there in that auditorium and I'll never forget it being like, this is part of who I am, whether I like it or not. And in me not talking about it, I'm actually doing a disservice to what I've always wanted to do, which is help people. So I need to talk about what I've been through exactly what you're saying because people are like but it doesn't happen to people like you um yeah and that and that's literally in the in in the moment where I thought right I need to set this up um and throughout the relationship I I'd done a lot of writing and um, I guess writing kind of features a lot in <laughs> in my life um and I wrote about kind of everything that was happening and on the final day that I wrote anything down I wrote one day I will stand tall and that's why I called the charity stand tool because I was like, there will be days where I do not want to do this. And there'll be days that this is triggering and there'll be days that this is really, really difficult. But if I remember that, then hopefully it will see me through. And then you went on, like you said, to, to, to be the founder of stand tool, which is, I believe from what I've seen, the UK's largest domestic abuse platform for, for, for sufferers, for victims, for people who think they are in, in troublesome situations. Was that because you felt you didn't have access to those tools when you were in that situation? Yeah, that's exactly why. So, um, it was literally that next day at One Young World, they, at the, the final day, they have like a massive party for everyone to go to. I didn't really feel like partying because that night, like loads of stuff was coming back. I was having nightmares. It was all triggers of like what happened in the relationship. So I hadn't really wow. thought about it. So long. Um, and I was like, what, what did I need? And what I needed was to have a safe and anonymous place online that I could find out what I was going through rather than walking through the doors of one of these charities and putting my hand up to be like, hi, I'm a victim. It's so difficult to say that out loud. Yeah. And then to even go and then not even just say it out loud to then physically walk through these doors and be like, I need help or even call up a helpline. Um, and I was like, there's nothing out there, really. If you if you know of Women's Aid or you know of these places, you can go to their websites. But a lot of it is very jargon-esque. You know, there's a lot of these words. What do they mean? Um, and then I went into research of, like, actually, if someone's in an abusive relationship and, and they're at home, they only have around two to five minutes max to find what they need. So some of these websites, like, by the time you've even found what you need, like, five minutes is, is long gone. So how yeah. could we make something whereby it educates people, it's safe and anonymous, and people can find what they need within that time frame? And that's basically what we set out to do. And then the second part was then a, an education platform because so many people think, oh, I, I'm hurt or I've been hit, therefore it must be domestic abuse. But actually, it could be stuff like financial abuse or psychological abuse. And for someone to go out and be brave enough to go and get that help, if it's not the right type of abuse, that they are, fit, are, they are going out to get help for, and then it doesn't help, they're really not likely to go back and get more help. Um, so we created this platform whereby it talks about all the different types of abuse, all the different signs. Um, and we've had parents, siblings, teachers say, you know, this is super informative because I suddenly realized actually my daughter might be going through this in their relationship, even though we think the guy's really nice, or vice versa, because nice. it doesn't just happen with, yeah. with women, it's also men. Um, and that's one of the things as well that we've done is that it's it's non-gendered, you know, because this happens to anyone. This is not just a, a woman's issue. Right. So, yeah. Um, so does that does that run itself now? Does that does that just do you how much how much of your day to day life do you spend working on Stand Tall? So the website kind of runs itself. We do like updates or whatever. But um, what I have then done um, yeah. is together training courses. Um, that corporates have bought. Um, you can either just get the, the training courses that they upload onto their portal or I do um, webinars and Q&As as well um, just to kind of keep up a bit of more of a sustainable income because I, I only know about business. I don't really know about charities. So when I, I set up a charity, I didn't understand the charitable model. I was like, why am I spending all my time fundraising when actually I could be bringing in the money myself and making it more sustainable? Um, so it, it, it's technically yeah. set as a charity, but I'm trying to run it more as just like a sustainable business. Um, it, it doesn't take up, 
it takes up some of my time. I'm trying to balance it because there's a lot going on. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to coming on to that. Okay, so, so again, <laughs> tragically, you lost your sister last January. Um, mm. And I can't, I can't even begin to imagine how painful that must have been. Um, and this was all, sadly, around mental illness. Mm. Um, what, just, I mean, if it's possible, can you describe what that kind of period in your time was like? How long had this sort of, how long had, it was Rebecca, wasn't it? So how long had Rebecca been suffering? Um, yeah, so me and Rebecca were 18 months um, apart. We're super, super close. We share, we shared bedroom for most of our lives um, before I, I went to university. Um, he was off the scale intelligent, like off the scale intelligent, um, and went to medical school. And I think a lot of the stuff that she saw there kind of triggered anything that was kind of in her mind. Um, you know, you have to be pretty headstrong to go in every day she was in A&E and like there was nothing she could have done but some of these people were dying you know mm. uh, and and when you are somewhat anxious or or feel low or you know it, it just that cycle it's very easy to see and actually the more research I've done the more I've realized how many doctors um do end their lives um and how much of, of a thing it is and it is just something that I will campaign for for the rest of my life about how we need better support for everyone in mental health and mental illness, but specifically for doctors and nurses and anyone in the health profession because of what they see day in, day out, especially at the moment with COVID. You know, we're all clapping them, but like they don't need a clap. Um, you know, great that we are clapping, yeah. but they need a heck of a lot more than that. Um, so it kind of spiraled. Um, and she was in about in and out of hospitals. Um, so we were in and out of NHS mental health wards for, for years. Um, at points she'd be there for months. Um, so, you know, this was very much trying to kind of keep up my corporate job and everything that I was doing there whilst also, you know, at, at points she's like, she wouldn't eat or take her medication unless I was there. Um, so, you know, obviously she was priority making sure you were there to, to do all of that with her. Um, but being in one of these mental mm. health is, is, is scarring enough. I mean, it was just, you, you never knew because she, she was eventually diagnosed with bipolar, but before, um, she had bipolar, there was psychotic depression episodes. There were um, manic episodes. There were psychotic episodes. Um, an extreme step up for me in learning. Um, there was one yeah. time when psychosis episode, and didn't sleep for 14 days. But for the first five days, even though we were in A&E, they were like, we have no beds. You have to take her home. And my parents were away. And I I had to care for her. So I had to, um, the psychiatrist over the phone would tell me how I had to clean up my flat and what I had to do so that I couldn't have anything around. I had to go to one of these places where like the doors open and then they shut and then the next one opened. And I was given the medication and was told, had to learn what all the medications were, how much to give her how to give it to her, how to make sure that it had gone down, um, how to deal with the ups and downs and whatever. And it becomes a carer role, like anyone who's been through any form of caring. Um, it, it was intense. It and was nothing sad. prepared you for that? Nothing. Yeah, I mean, I, nothing. And this is, again, an area that I'm really, really trying to, to learn about because as I've been following a couple of these influencers, uh, mental health campaigners, et cetera, on, on it, there's just so much I don't know. Uh, and yeah. there's so many um, failings in the system. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, I saw a guy who campaigns a lot, who unfortunately was in a similar position to you, who lost his brother. Um, and he talks about... The, the waiting list to see someone on the in the NHS mental health um, system can be up to six months and it's not good enough. And these are kids who need the help and they, and they can't access it. And I'm keen to get your thoughts on whether you think there is still a stigma um, attached to it, um, particularly in the education system. And if, you know, perceptions of it are well, I certainly know they haven't that they haven't changed at the rate that we need them to. But do you feel like we are turning a corner on all things mental Ill, mental health, mental illness related? 
I think when I look at COVID, that's the one positive that I can see. Suddenly, everyone is talking about it because nobody understood. Oh, you know, people would say, oh, I feel depressed. And like they didn't actually know what that meant. Or I feel lonely or I feel sad. But every single person in the world, not even just in the UK, in the world has felt that at some point over the past year. And it's been able to bring up a conversation whereby people can relate because before people couldn't relate as much, you know, with, with cancer, with other awful, awful diseases, we know the stats. So many people have come into some form of contact with somebody who has, you know, either passed away or had cancer. Um, but with mental illness, so many people don't talk about it. Um, and it's one of the main reasons why I want to, you know, basically keep Rebecca's legacy alive is I think so many people don't talk about it because it's such a trigger for them. For Rebecca, she was getting, she was desperately trying to get better in and out of hospital for months and months and months. We don't expect someone who's, you know, stage four cancer to suddenly stand up and start talking about all the experiences that they're going through. It's such a trigger. And that's the same for mental illness. And so now that she's gone, you know, I, I feel like I can tell her story and I can talk about those experiences and give an insight into what it's actually like. Um, because so many people don't know. It's so in the dark. Um, yeah, these mental health wards, it, it is. It's uh, that anyone who we met from the day that I, I took her in all the way through to getting to know the staff so well, my goodness. I mean, they, they came to her funeral, et cetera. I mean, it was unbelievable. Oh, um, my God. They are absolutely unbelievable. I literally couldn't fly the flag any higher for the NHS if I tried. But the system fails. The system fails. I can't say it loud enough. The system fails. And it failed her. It failed us. It failed every single person in there. Not because these doctors, consultants, nurses, mental health nurses, anyone, security guards aren't working the hardest I've ever seen anyone work. But because the system isn't set up well enough to help these people through what they need. So I know this is a hard question, but if you had a magic wand and you could go into number 10 tomorrow, what what is it that you would ask for? Well, the first thing is is resources because they are so stretched. You know, the waiting times are, are six months plus, you know. Mm. Even when Rebecca was having a psychotic episode, you know, they sent her home from A&E because they were, we can't deal with this. I, I'm sorry, like if if somebody had cancer and they like it just made no sense to me like how, how can you send someone home to their their sister's flat who has absolutely no I, I hadn't got a clue what I was doing yeah. you know I was, on, I was on the call I was on the phone to psychiatrists every single day and I was hounding the hospital because I took Rebecca to a hospital near me but because she lived with my parents it was a different trust of hospitals and that and they didn't speak to each other so they were like we can't get her into a bed so you're gonna have to call them up so then I was looking after my sister whilst calling up the hospital hounding them saying where's the bed where's the bed where's the bed six days passed while she was in that state and to me honestly like lord knows what damage that did to her brain because she wasn't getting the right care so I I would look number 10 in the eye so deep and say you failed my sister and you're failing millions of other people out there they need to be able to get into the care there need to be more beds there need to be more staff because the staff are phenomenal but they are so overstretched and there needs to be more money behind it end of yeah and so long as it's seen as something different i'm not even going to say less than but so long as it's seen different as a physical issue we're always going to have this problem because mm-hmm. like you said they wouldn't send someone home with like a a limb falling off or you know like you say a cancer so why would you send someone home who is going through you know the deepest episode of whatever it is that's related to, to mental illness it, it's beyond me and I think you're totally right and hopefully there will be increased funding um yeah. in this space for for many many years to come so then you um, you got married and had a beautiful baby. Um, and this is, I think, where there's a huge kind of life, another huge life-changing moment in your life, because then you go on to become the founder of another business. So can you talk to me about that? Yeah. Um, 
I had always, as we spoke about, been this corporate career girl of like, oh, if I need to achieve, this is what I need to do. I need to like work my way up. So I would get into work early, be home late. I was that friend that was always late to dinners. I'm coming. I'm sorry. Oh, sorry. I've just got to answer this email. You know, it was, I was always that person. Um, and suddenly I was on maternity leave. Um, and I opened up the work. Like I saw the world around me. Like I'd been doing stuff at work and I'd been writing these reports, but I actually saw the world around me and I went to a local library and they did like a Monday morning reading of books and I'm looking around me and we were living in, in inner London at that point. And I was like, my son is literally the only person represented in all of these books that no other kids sat next to us is. And like, what the hell is, is that about? And I was like, I'm working on diversity and inclusion day in, day out at work. And I'm writing these speeches for our senior leaders. And I'm doing these presentations about all the difference we're going to make. And I'm like, why are we not starting with the younger generation? This is, this is ridiculous. Um, and at this point, my sister was our hospital and, and she loved, um, Rebecca, she loved cooking. So she would come over and, and help cook while I was feeding and doing all the stuff that I was doing as a, as a new mum, which is an absolute, I mean, it just blows your mind. I mean, no one ever tells you yeah. that stuff. <laughs> I've got no sure. idea. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, right. Okay. Sure. Okay. Um, and, so we'd be discussing over dinners, like, I don't understand. The books that we're looking at are all male characters or white male characters and all straight male characters. Um, and they don't, and not even as bad as that, like there's no representation, but there's also no messages. It's like, oh, they're going to the park, right? You know, and we were getting so irate about it. And then I started reading a lot about behavioral science and it was like, Kids, by the time they're around 18 months to three years old, understand, quote unquote, where they fit in society. I was like, that's mad. Yeah. My son's already three or four months old. Like, I need to be talking to him about this stuff now. And people are like, oh, but they're three or four months old. I'm like, it doesn't matter. Like, we need to get in this early. Um, so I then started looking up books. And I was like, I can't find what I want to read him. So um, I basically decided if I look at things positively, um, which at the time in the night with my son being up every hour, I wasn't, I was like, let's try and change my mindset of let's think I've been given the gift of time. Um, and I have to keep myself awake in the night because he's feeding and I don't want to drop him. Um, let's write the book that I want to read to him. Um, and my sister at the time was like, that's amazing. She was a phenomenal artist, like phenomenal. Um, and she was like, it'd be really good for me to then also do the illustrations. Um, so we set out to do it together and we were like, this is fantastic. Um, let's write the book that we want to read to him and every other kid in the world, basically. Um, and then she went into hospital and soon after that became incredibly ill. So, so couldn't. Um, and she said to me, look, I can't, I, I can't do it, but please carry on with it. And so I found someone else and she did see the first book and she did read it to my son which is uh, you oh know oh my god that's incredible something that was really 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 special um and she she said to me one day in hospital she said esther i don't understand why especially when she was kind of in the deep depressive mood she got incredibly philosophical we would have like five six hour chats and she said to me like i don't understand why we were the ones that got to grow up with privilege why did we have a nice house growing up why did we get good education and before I could say anything she said to me because I know that we'll do something good with it and we'll use our privilege to make a difference um so from the day that the police came around to our house to tell us that they'd found her body I I couldn't stop thinking about that I was like what am I doing in a corporate when I could be making a difference and I could build something that was both of our ideas and I could keep her with me. Um, and so in the two days after she passed away, I then wrote the second book. So the first book is Sophie says, I can, I will. That's all about kind of um, gender equality and keeping women um, at the forefront in leadership roles so that, that other people can see. And the second one is Sophie says, it's okay not to be okay, which I wrote kind of the night after and the second night after Rebecca passed away. Um, um, and so I basically was like, 
yeah, all this stuff that I taught, I've been taught that we spoke about at the beginning of this is what a career should be. And I need to bring in a massive salary and a this and a that. It's like, screw that. I, I need to be doing something that, that means something to me. And was it? Yeah, sorry. So I was just going to say, like, was it an either or? Did was it a I have to leave my really great job on a really great salary to pursue this? Um, I, I think if I didn't have my son, I probably would have just done it. But I was like, huh, I need to be somewhat financially stable. I need to pay for nursery. I need this. I need that. So I went down to four days a week at Unilever. Um, and gave myself one day a week and the weekends and the evenings to get Sophie says to a point where it was somewhat commercially viable to then go and do full time. Um, so I'd love to say I just decided straight away. I was like, I'm out, but it took me about six, seven months before I actually left. No, of course. I mean, anyone would be thinking, I mean, I was certainly thinking, I was like, what? You just sacked it in. I was like, you, you can't do that. Because again, and I think it, maybe it's from, from, the, from the education system and, and what we were taught at uni is that there are rules, even though we know that there aren't rules. But in my head, there are rules. It's like, I have to have, you know, when they tell you things like, you need four or five months worth of salary for savings, just in case you get made redundant, or just in case this happens, you need to do this. And it's like, no, no, that's not, that is not actually how it works anymore. Um, but yeah. anyway, your, your kind of message is absolutely incredible. And I just can't, and it makes me so excited to know that there are young boys and girls in all over the world listening to these new messages about empowerment and equality and these like messages that to your point just did not exist. And I just wonder, maybe my childhood might have been slightly different because as someone who was bullied and shamed and carrying around trauma, that was a result of, I believe, of social norms and conformity. Mm-hmm. And, and again, these, in inverted commas, rules that are made up. Um, and it makes me so excited that there are potentially a 10-year-old boy or girl walking around primary school being more confident and uh, self-assured in, as to who they are. And, and I've said on many, many episodes now, the, the, for me the source of happiness or the the north star of happiness is finding your own truth and being comfortable in your own mm-hmm. skin and what you're doing yeah. is is absolutely laddering up to that um i have a question though around do you find in your experience in in building sophie says how kind of um how engaged are parents are they on board with your message or do they feel like oh are you going a bit too far Yeah, so this is kind of where I was thinking and where Unilever has helped because for so long I've been working diversity, inclusion and how to stop harmful stereotypes. Um, And I did a lot of research of there are many parents that do want this, but if they do, they have to go to a specific part in the library and they have to go to a niche section. And then you've got things like Peppa Pig teaching awful stereotypes that are right out there and somehow have managed to become massive and parents are just putting them in front of them. So I was like, right, I need something in the middle. How do I take the niche and make it the mainstream? So basically, uh, I say, uh, my books are Sophie Says I Can, I Will. Sophie Says It's Okay Not To Be Okay. Then one I've literally just written is Sophie Says Be Proud Of Who You Are. Which (laughs) Which parent doesn't want to say to their kid, be proud of who they are? Which parent doesn't want to say to their kid, I can, I will? Which parent doesn't want to say, it's okay not to be okay, right? This this is something every parent wants, not even just parents. I've had people who don't have kids read the book being like, I needed this when I was younger. And it just so happens that within the book, there's all sorts of positive stereotypes. So no one is going to the books really because they're looking for that niche. It's because it's the mainstream message. And that's where we've tried to completely change what the standard children's literature stuff is saying and completely flip it on its head. Yeah. Because it, because we need, we need the parents to be watching Peppa Pig saying this isn't good enough. Like, but or my worry is, or not watching it at all. I mean, that'd be nice. But my, my fear is, yeah. is that they're not, they're not, going to do that until there's a viable alternative and please god yours sophie says is going to become 
the biggest TV show in the world and there'll be films and there'll be theme parks and there'll be all sorts. Of, but until that, my, my worry is, and I don't know if it's because I'm just highly, highly cynical and skeptical, but like, it's easy for parents to just ignore it. Yeah, I think it's not just, I mean, it's also helped becoming a parent and you're like, okay, I just need, you know, before I had Asha, I was like, my kid won't have any screen time and my kid won't do this. Now it's like, <laughs> oh my God, like here, take half an hour. And it's like, and because I'm the type of parent that thinks about what he watches, I'm like, I can't really find that much stuff for him to actually watch unless I'm sat there with him and I can be like, oh, did you see how they were doing nice sharing? You know, like those kind of messages. But so many parents are like, oh, just take the iPad, sit down just to give me a 10 minute break. And what we need is more content that kids can be watching that isn't fueling yeah. harmful stereotypes. That, that's, that's, that's end of like all we need. So yeah, I, I hope that we can do that at some point. I'm trying. <laughs> God, it's hard work. It's hard work pe- parent, being a parent, isn't it? Um, when you're trying yeah. to sort of develop good morals and having a strong compass and all of that. Um, one of the things I've asked people to do is write a letter to their younger selves. Um, mm-hmm. Because it's, with me, certainly I'd be so interested in yours, but what I find is that so much of what we go through as a kid or as a child or an adolescent affects who we become when we hit the 30 mark. Um, and I've spoken to a few people now and it's just so interesting to see how all those bumps in the road have always worked out okay. Um, yeah. And there's a lot of hardship. And do you do you have yours? Do you have one ready? I do. It, it, it's a message rather than a letter, but it's 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 still something. A, a, a message would be absolutely perfect. Um, <laughs> so when you're ready. Okay. I've written, Dear young Esther, you will grow up thinking that certain life and lifestyle will bring you joy and happiness. But let me tell you now that things will happen in your life, both good and bad, that will make you realize it's the small thing and things in life that make you happy. The small moments, the small glances, the memories that will stick out from one small minute. Money, stature and job title will seem like targets you want to achieve when you first start out on your own once you've left home. You will use the tools that you have learned of hard work and always striving to give your best for many years until you realize that actually you need to treat yourself with more self-love and self-care. Regardless of what anyone says, trust in the person that you are and those attributes that people once told you were your weaknesses, like caring too much and being told not just to concentrate on your own work or trying to change the world for the better instead of dealing with the issue at hand or dreaming too big that people would tell you that your head is in the clouds. Take those so-called weaknesses and use them as your strengths. No, even more so, use them as your superpowers. Dare to dream big and make a difference. And I promise the meaning of life and happiness of life will shine through. Wow. <laughs> how, did you, how did you find writing that? That's really powerful. Uh, well, thanks. Um, yeah, I found it really good. I think it was the perfect time because I literally had to kind of write myself that note Anyway, after leaving Unilever and being like everything you've worked for for eight years of everyone knowing you as the one that's going to make it big in the career and is going to have this, yeah. you know, it's completely changed in the past two weeks that I've left. And I'm, I'm a completely, I'm not a completely different person. I'm the same person, but it, it feels like things have changed. So I found it very therapeutic to write that to myself. No, it's, <laughs> and it is a very therapeutic. It was a therapist that told me to do it. Um, not that she wasn't my therapist, but a therapist told me to do it. And I, do you still, based on what you've, I mean, leaving a corporate job is, is an incredible thing to do. Do you, do you care what people think of you? Um, I don't think so anymore. Do you um, think when you were hustling and looking for, for the, for the grad scheme and the promotions, was that, were you proving a point there? Yeah, I think throughout school, I'd always been told I went to like a very pushy school and I was always told like, you're not going to get 100% and therefore you're going to fail and this and that. And I always had like incredibly low self-esteem. And I think I got to a point where, especially after the abusive relationship, where I was like, screw everyone who's told me I can't. 
I can and I will. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so be it. And you know, there'll be people that don't like me, that's fine. There will be people that like me, great. There'll be people that couldn't care less, great. And actually I had a therapist that said to me once, um, because I've done a lot of therapy, and she was like, Esther, no one cares about you. No one cares other than you. Yeah. And it was the best piece of advice because I kept thinking, oh, I shouldn't do that or I should do that because this person isn't going to like it or that person is going to like it and I need to get that person to like it. It was like, I couldn't care less. You could you could literally despise me or you could love me, but I, I'm going to do me um, and, uh, and so be it, basically. What? Yeah, what an incredible message. And it's taken me 30 years to realise that that no one cares. And actually, you're not the first guest to say it because there are, you know, people who have, you know, become aware of things about themselves. So, you know, later on in life in their late 20s, and then they think it's going to be a big deal. But actually, no one cares. Like, literally, no one cares what your job title is, how much money you make, where you live, what you wear, what music you listen to. All the things that were so important to us as kids are totally irrelevant. Um, And, and, and that's, where, that's, social, that's why social media now I think is so scary. Like people are judged yeah. by how you look or this filter or this many followers or like I've had so many stories like people with like 100 followers but are making such a big difference or earning a huge amount or some of these people that have millions of followers that are super, they're struggling, you know, and it's, yeah. look at the person, see the person, don't see the the, the filters right and find yeah, who your people are and that's, that's all you need esther thank you so much for joining me today that was incredible so many amazing messages in there and um hopefully when lockdown is over i will get to see you again in the no, park. Be lovely. thank you so much for having me no problem good to see you take care you too thanks bye Wow, what an incredible human. I am so inspired and so in awe of Esther and her ability to stay positive despite all the blows she's had. Please be sure to subscribe if you haven't already to be notified of new episodes when they're launched. And thank you as always for listening. Until next time, stay safe.